Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guests are Kate Kilbane and Dan Moses. They are the Kilbanes. They are the creators and performers of a rock opera, and it's called Weightless, and it's at ACT Strand Theater, April 30th through May 12th. The Kilbanes have worked on three rock operas, Medea, Cycle, Weightless, and Eddie the Marvelous Who Will Save the World. And there's a new musical coming, Girly, which we will talk about. And it's also composed musics for plays by Lauren Gunderson. Weightless was at Z Space and also was at Public Theater under the Radar Festival. Let's go back and talk a little bit about how you came to be musicians, how you came to move into the theatrical realm, and then we'll go more specifically into Weightless. And you're a married couple. Are you both from Oakland? We are mysterious aliens from another place. I was actually born in Texas and then went to college at the University of Virginia and then moved to New York to do my grad work and also to sort of become self-realized as an artist. And that is where I met Dan at a pizza place in Brooklyn. I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up in Berkeley. Part of the reason we're back here, we both work in New York. What kind of work? Just music? For me, music. I was a jazz saxophonist and pianist and composer and just playing in clubs and, and, and playing jazz and a little bit of funk and rock. I was a musician pretty much entirely. And I didn't play music at all. I came up as a theater director, actually, and that's what I moved to New York to do and really what, it, what I wanted to spend my time doing. And I, I started down that road and I was you know, sort of seeing as much theater as I possibly could and starting to think about making theater. I got a master's in performance studies, um, which I was thinking about as a kind of director's toolkit, the art of ritual and how it works. And then I had a good old-fashioned quarter-life crisis, and I couldn't figure out why the theater wasn't feeling like the right place for me. And I started playing music sort of out of desperation. My father played guitar and sang folk songs growing when I was growing up. And I started just to learn to play guitar as he did, and I found it was the only thing that made me feel better about things. So when we met, Dan was a conservatory-trained you know, musician, and I knew three chords on the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and I had been playing for about six months. So uh, I had a huge sort of journey rediscovering myself as an artist. Your entire idea from the beginning was to create musical theater. In the very beginning, it was actually just to create music. Yeah, when we moved out here, we got married, and I had my band, and, and Kate had hers, and we, we decided to keep that completely separate because, you know, you, you never know. You, if you, uh, you know, bands break up, and, you know, you, you'd hate for that to uh, <laughs> <laughs> happen inside of marriage. inside of marriage. And then you're still together for breakfast the next morning, and what do you do? That's true. And actually, I wrote my first rock opera, The Medea Cycle, by accident. I was playing in New York. I had just recently switched from acoustic guitar to electric bass, and it was totally exciting and thrilling to me. And I wanted to write music on the bass and see what that sounded like and felt like. But I was in a stable, happy, romantic relationship with Dan Moses, so what the hell did I have to write songs about? And so I started writing the story of Medea 
just as a way to combat the blank page for myself. I never intended to tell anybody that these songs were connected, that they all told one story. I would just wake up in the morning and say, well, now I have to write the one where she thinks Jason might be cheating on her, but she's not sure. And what does that sound like? And then by happenstance, my piano player at the time, which was not Dan Moses because we were not married yet and we were keeping things separate, said to me, didn't you say these songs were all connected? And I said, well, yeah, but it's really nerdy. I don't want to talk about it. And, and she said, no, no, tell me the story. And so I told her the story of Medea as I envisioned it in our one of our rehearsals. And she was like, you have to do this. This is what you have to do. And I said, we play in blues clubs. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to hear this. And she said, I bet you 50 bucks it'll work. And so I took her bet. And we did it at a blues club in Brooklyn a couple of weeks later where instead of sort of in-between song banter, I just told the story of Medea, again, as I had kind of reimagined it, and then played each song in order. And it really worked. And it was one of those sort of magical nights where you start to feel a synthesis of your life coming together. So we sort of fell sideways by yeah. accident into writing rock operas. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan, were you part of that band at that point? Or were you just in the audience listening? I was just in the audience listening. Like I said, Kate had her project. Both of us had our own musical projects. Kate's started. This was the sort of the first instance of it skewing theatrical. Yeah. When we got married, we um, you were auditioning piano players. And I said, finally... <laughs> Why don't you let me play at least one show? Um, we'll just see how it goes. Um, and it, it actually went really well. That was the origin of, of this band, The Kill Bands. And then um, we sort of were a rock band with a little theatrical element, I, th I guess is the way to put it. And um, sort of over the years, it's been an interesting transition from rock band that does a little bit in the theater world to like music and theater specifically for the theater. Yeah. Now theater is home, but it took a while to find that. After you created... Medea, yeah. it kind of sat there as part of your repertoire until you decided that you would work that into rock opera, or did it just stay at that place and you just started fresh with Weightless? It's a good question. I mean, no, I think it was a generative over time, but what did happen over the course of two or three years is we started playing the Medea cycle as a cycle, and I really polished the in between song narration and the text, and we figured out how to score text, so it felt like the songs were holding more of the spoken language as well, and sort of developed it into an ex a storytelling experience. And when we were polishing that, we started writing the second one, which is now Waitlist, and that was much more explicitly and deliberately from the outset going to be some combination of theater and music and storytelling. And the story, it's from Metamorphosis. I'm not familiar with it because Metamorphosis was a long time ago. <laughs> and even if you were, frankly, it's sort of a B-roll story. Ovid's emphasis, it's two pages and you, you blink and you miss it. We only know it because of you know Shakespeare references, Philomela, like in Titus Andronicus, we sort of hear about it. Keats writes a poem, but it has less to do with the story itself. Um, but yes, it's the story in book six, for all you nerds out there, of Ovid's Metamorphoses. <laughs> Two sisters, Procne and Philomela, and we have adapted the hell out of it. So my telling of the myth is actually very different in some respects from Ovid's telling. But the thing that drew us to the original story is the character Philomela, the sisters become separated, and she wants to find her sister again. And her sister's husband comes to retrieve her. And when he does, he decides to take her for himself. He decides he'd like two wives. And so he rapes her, essentially. And she says... I'm going to tell everybody what you've done. I'm not going to stay silent about this. And he cuts out her tongue and throws her in a shed and tells her sister that she has died. And Philomela, who has now lost her voice, her ability to tell her story, remembers that she's a weaver. And she weaves the story of what happened to her and finds a way to get it to her sister. And that was one of the most powerful things about the myth to us was this idea of losing your voice and finding it in another way and continuing to tell your story, even when it seems you shouldn't have the ability to. 
So how did you find that particular story if it's really obscure? <laughs> it is. Like all of our most important decisions, I don't remember. I mean, I studied Ovid's metamorphosis in, in college as an English major, and all I remember is sitting at home one day and thinking, what is the next thing about? I think it's about Philomela. And the name came back to me before the details of the story. So then I went and looked it up and read it and thought, yeah. When she approached you with the idea, what was your thought? Excitement and terror, as, <laughs> as it is with pretty much every new project. Yeah. Um, I thought, well, that's really exciting. And also, how on earth are we going to do that? Right. <laughs> I think one of the things we're always looking for is what music can do that so easily and so beautifully. And one of the things it can do, of course, is convey feeling and emotion outside of language. That's part of it. Another thing, of course, is at the end of this story, spoiler alert, everyone, uh, the sisters turn into birds. The god turns them into birds. And that's a sort of impossible theatrically and very exciting musically. And it felt like something we could really do with music. And so it felt like a, a really awesome challenge. At that point, it was just similar to Medea, where you'd be telling the story and having music, which could be done in any club anywhere. <laughs> How did that transform into what it is today? I mean, that, I mean, it's a long transformation. But in your mind, Kate, you, that was always there. I think it was. I think so much of my own DNA is theatrical. And so I'm using that imagination even as I write, even if I don't intend ever to share that. But I think one of the things that happened externally is we decided on a whim to apply for and got a slot in the San Francisco Fringe Festival in 2012. We had just written Waitlist. It was brand new and shiny with lots of raggedy edges. <laughs> and we thought, this is great. We'll put it in a theater. We'll see what happens. We've only played this in clubs. How is this going to go? And it was music stands and telling the story. Nobody moved anywhere, right? And it was really just about telling the story and playing the music. And we got beautiful response, including from Lisa Steinler, who's the artistic director of Z Space, who came to see the piece and she, with a dear friend um, and collaborator, artist of ours, James Ferrone, whom she was working with at the time, they came together to see it. And they said, we love this piece. We'd love to help you develop it for the theater. Would you like to come on, on board and sort of consider this a commission and start working with Z-Space? So they opened this huge, gorgeous door for us um, to, to really reimagine the piece theatrically. And then we spent the next several years at Z-Space thinking about, okay, if we're going to put this on its feet in a different way. What is it? What is it? Yeah. What does it look like? Do they pay you for that? <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, we, um, they, they gave us a commission fee and, and they gave us space and time to work. Yeah. So we were able to hire other performers, musicians and actors to help us. I mean, it was the gift every artist dreams of. amazing gift, yeah. And where does Becca Wolf, the director, come in? Yeah, so we were obviously on the hunt for a, for a director for the piece even before we were ready to put it on stage. And another amazing uh, part of our team, Wendy Vanden Heuvel, who's a producer and an actress and an amazing, clearly you know her, work of Piece by Piece Productions, had sort of developed some interest in the piece and was helping to mentor us. And she knew Becca. I don't know why, but of course they're both theater people, so I'm sure there's an obvious explanation. And she said, I think I have a director that might be a really good fit for you who's just moved to town. And she brought Becca to um, one of our earlier workshops. And it was a lovely fit. We sparked really well. And Becca came on board informally at first and then, of course, formally. And first what she did was she put up with draft after draft. She would come to our house, sit around our dining room table, listen to us play through the new version that we'd just finished writing and give us notes uh, on what she was hearing. What were the notes like? They were wonderful. I mean, the question is always, which moments in a story are you going to explode and expand and live in and which moments are you going to gloss over quickly to get to the next place, right? That, that question of the zoom lens, I think, and yeah. especially musically when you're choosing which 
moments to write songs about and which moments not right. to. So a lot of the notes had to do with that. Like, oh, this moment feels important. Let's blow this up and let's mm -hmm. live in this time more. There were also lots of questions about the adaptation, right? Yeah, when do we want to leave the story, um, the original? How much license can we take? <laughs> you know, how what is it? What happens to the story if X or if Y? There's a big jump between a theater piece and giving a narration by one person with music interludes. Now, this has multiple actors, so it's actually more play. So somewhere along the line, it becomes a play, and yet at the same time, it's billed as a concert. And I'm just like going, wait, is it a concert? Is it is a play. What, what are you doing? And, and I think you're not the only one who asks. You know, one of the concepts for us was because this is a piece all about transformation, right? The characters are transformed. Um, our narrator and storyteller is a god who in some ways transforms herself, undergoes transformation. We like the idea of the actual performance genre transforming. So our concept walking in was this begins as a concert. It feels like a concert. We're all standing behind the mic microphones and singing songs. And the more the piece continues and the more the story unfolds and hopefully draws you in, the more it feels like something else entirely. Are there sets? There's gorgeous set design, but I'm not calling it a set. What you mostly see on stage is all of the things required to play a rock show. So Dan's keyboard, I'm the bassist and the singer, right? All of our microphones, our guitarist has a huge pedal board with all of his effects on mm -hmm. it, his guitar, the drum kit. That's what you're seeing, right? Then above us, there are be these beautiful, we call them sort of orbs, but they're these beautiful floating three-dimensional objects that catch light and projection. A great deal of the design concept was also about the interplay between projection and lights and, and the set design, which is, of course, great for rock shows because rock shows often have right, yeah. really fabulous lights that enhance the music that help you listen to it, essentially. So that's how the design functions. So now it's played at Z, and I saw some of the reviews. They were very good. What happened to get it over to the Strand? My understanding is because it, it did really well at Z, it was a shorter run at Z, and we felt like we there was wished, more we could do in San Francisco. Yeah, we wished we could extend. There was, you know, more interest. And then we took it to under the radar at the public and it did really well there and we had really good response. And there was a little sliver of an opening at the strand and I think apocryphally, Andy Donald and Lisa Styler were talking and Andy was saying, Yeah, we've got these three, four weeks of the strand. We don't know what to do with it. And Lisa said, What about waitlist? When you're going into the Strand, you're dealing with an interesting space because the stage isn't that wide, but it is ridiculously deep. Yeah, that's been the major question of this rehearsal process and this remount, is figuring out how to reconfigure it. Because the performance and production at Z-Space was a thrust, you know, audience on right. three sides with a big ramp that we used uh, a great deal of the time. And so now we're having to re-envision it. But it's been really exciting to do yeah. that because, of course, one of our goals for the piece is to have it travel. We'd like it to move and and hopefully we'll get to share it with other cities in the country and go to other theaters. And, of course, having a proscenium version of it is really important. And you play characters as well as yourselves? Yes. So, Dan, what are you? Oh. <laughs> um, I play the, the all very important roles of uh, keyboard player and local half-wit, which is a very small but critical role, no doubt. There's a line in the play that says that um, Prockney's father was going to force her to marry some local half-wit. And our rehearsal joke is that Dan then grins and waves at the audience, which, of course, <laughs> we have cut from the actual show. So between the songs, there's play. There's some scenes. There's, there's dialogue. We speak to one another. And, of course, the, the god who sort of watches us and takes up our story, 
does the narrating tells the story. And Kate is a character. Yeah, I play the character of Procne, so I'm one of the two sisters. And again, the idea is, I think we're always in our work looking for, I, I think the sort of ground in between genres can be the most fertile and exciting. And a lot of the work that's happening right now in, in music and theater is doing that work, is exploring the, the crevices, right, and the world between a concert and a play, and how can we live in both worlds at once somehow, or allow both worlds to inform each other. So my thought is, like, yes, I am Kate Kilbane, and I talk to you as myself at the very beginning of the story. And then again, as the piece goes on and begins to transform, I really become Procne in a way that, you know, feels to me at least quite, quite total, right? that that becomes the role that I'm playing and the experience I'm having. Well, there is kind of a history of this melding of genres going back to Tommy and mm -hmm. The Wall. Absolutely. Mm -hmm and some of the work by the Kinks as well. So they all had the issue of trying to find a way to cohere it, and with kind of mixed success, where the music turned out great, but then you put it together with the story, like Tommy, and you walk away scratching your head. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, could have, we could have invented an easier project. And I do think one of the things that feels really freeing about sort of feeling like we're squarely in the theater, but we bring all of this music sensibility and, and all the, you know, as the sense of being a rock band is that we really let the story step forward, if that makes sense. Like, I think that that is the priority for us and all the music we write, it feels crucial to us that it serves the story. Our goal is that every song we write serves the story in a satisfying way and also that we could play it in a club. Is this basically the same piece that was at Z-Space? Have you rewritten there hasn't been a lot of rewriting. There has been a lot of reimagining in terms of what it needs to look like. It gave us this beautiful opportunity to look back at a couple of moments of the piece where we thought, oh, now we understand more what we want this moment to do, and so perhaps we'll reconsider the staging as well. We'll reconsider the image that we offer the audience. So the text, I've rewritten a few chunks, but other than that, the text is mostly the same. Is the cast the same? It is. The cast is the yeah. same. Yeah. What is Eddie the Marvelous Who Will Save the World, which <laughs> is listed as your third rock opera? It's not really a rock opera, that one. That's more of a rock musical. So Eddie the Marvelous is not an adaptation. We decided for our third piece to try dreaming up a story of our own and see what we came up with. And it's the story of a young man who, uh, he goes undiagnosed in the piece, but he presents to us as somebody with a series of sort of social and, and neurological struggles. He might seem like somebody who's on the spectrum. And so in his own life, he's sort of 24, never quite graduated from high school, living at home with his mom in a small town in the Midwest in the 80s. And his life is very, very small. He can't really leave the house. He has really trouble with basic human interaction and conversation. But he has this wild, incredibly lush and rich imagination. And that is the world of the music in the piece. So what happens with the storytelling is you'll see him have a semi-disastrous conversation with, say, the woman who brings him the mail. And then he shuts the door when it's over, retreats to his room, and reimagines that same moment as an intergalactic space battle with himself as the hero. For a while, two plots unfold in parallel. There's the sort of living room drama of his life, and then there's the opera he's writing for himself in his own head, the sort of space rock Where opera. Where he's Ziggy Stardust, basically. Where he's Ziggy Stardust, exactly. And then, of course, as things in his real life get more complicated, when his mother gets a boyfriend and that boyfriend might move in and he sort of faces his private world being exploded, the two plots kind of merge and the, and the music sort of invades the straight play and takes it over. 
Is this one more of the kind of musical that could be performed by other people rather than the Kilbane? Is that the idea? Well put. That Absolutely. is exactly the idea. <laughs> um, we decided we wanted to, we're, we're both huge, 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 huge David Bowie fans and Queen fans, and we thought we wanted to study that music and write it, um, write music inspired by it. And so when you're looking to write for Freddie Mercury, I'm not exactly the person you'd cast first <laughs> in that role. And so, yes, we very deliberately thought, oh, this would be great. Let's write a piece for not our voices. Let's write a piece that can be performed by other people. And would that be more like a standard musical in a way without necessarily a rock band on stage and narration? There's totally a rock band on stage. And there is narration in the sense that it's very different and more limited, but in the sense that Eddie is telling us his story. So right. we do sort of hear that. But the idea is that the, the rock opera portion of the play, as Dan said, is kind of encased by or framed by this straight play. Yeah, we're, we're always sort of trying to, to find new and exciting ways, at least for us, of how to place music in the context of theater instead of like sort of the traditional musical where a character just breaks into song because the emotions are too huge. We're, we always look for other ways that reasons that music belongs in the piece. Yeah, like is there a structural question we right. can ask and answer with music? Exactly. So this one, the rule is, or the, the idea is that the music is all inside his head, and he's super into Queen and Bowie, and and so like he, you know, he sort of blooms and becomes this you know charismatic frontman for a glam rock band. One element in terms of dealing with musicals is that in a musical, you have to hear the lyrics. And one of the issues with rock musicals is, and with rock and roll, is that the <laughs> lyrics are very secondary. In a show like Hamilton, frankly, no matter what you do, unless you listen to the album 15 times, you're going to miss 90% of the words. Where do the Kilbanes fit on that continuum? My dear mother-in-law said to me, I love listening to your music because I can understand every word you say. I didn't set about to do that, but because my life as a lyricist is a huge part of what I do and what I bring, I do really try to, to feature that and focus on that when I'm performing the music, when I'm singing. It really matters to me that the audience understands what I'm saying. And so I think one of the things we try to do is all the work we want to be intelligible, we treat in a certain way. When we want to blow up and get huge, we... Love the woe. The word <laughs> woe is fantastic because we don't need you to understand it. We need you to understand the feeling, and that's what we're transmitting. But when there's language we want you to catch, we really try hard to create space for it. Yeah. And that's, A, my performances as a, you know, as a singer. Lila Blue, my co-star, who's incredible, does the same thing, really works hard at making the language intelligible. And then also it's about arrangement, right? It's about making sure that the instruments are out of the way of the voice when the voice is what's being featured. And then when we want to let the band take over, then we're out of the way and we, we try not to have language there that you need. To right. And in those moments where it's like, you know, more emotion and, and you know, if there are either woes or, so, or words that are maybe harder to understand, we sort of make a distinction between times where the, like there's, there's music that advances plot and then there's music that just sort of emotionalizes a moment. The times when things get bigger or, or uh, you know, big and loud, and, and if, there's if it's hard to understand the words, it, it's okay in, in so much as that those moments are really just meant to convey yeah, feeling. And, and feeling is clear. Exactly. Yeah. What is girly about yeah. <laughs> Helen Curly Brown? That's listed as a musical, so yeah. that's something yet again. Or is it? That's a great question. It's very zygotic. You know, it's still really early in the process, and so I think we don't know yet what it will be. 
that was a match made by the wonderful Giovanna Sardelli, who is a director, of course, um, nationally, but also the director of New Works at Theatre Works. And we had done Eddie the Marvelous at the New Works Festival down there, actually. And Giovanna, a couple of years later, said, I would like to make a match between you and, and playwright Lynn Rosen. She's got this musical idea. She's been looking for a band. I think you guys are a perfect fit. So she put us together uh, for a writer's retreat, and it went really, really well. Mm. And, you know, Helen Gurley Brown, I didn't actually know who she was until this project was presented to me, and I had the fascinating opportunity to learn all about her life. She's an incredible person. Very briefly, in the first half of her life, she actually the character of Peggy on Mad Men is based on her. She was the first female ad man on the West Coast. So she worked mm. her way up through, out of the steno pool into writing copy. And then her she wrote a book called Sex and the Single Girl, which was this sort of revolutionary book for, mm. for young women about life and work and sex and romance and all those things. And then she basically invented women's magazines. She was given uh, the chance to helm Cosmo, essentially because it was being run into the ground and they figured they'd take a chance on this lady who'd never run a magazine or even worked for one in her life. And she created this context for talking to women and talking about things that mattered to them. She invented Cosmo. Yeah. We're, you know, fascinated by her story and her sort of larger-than-life persona and also the very complicated legacy she leaves us. And in terms of the fact that, like, as a you know, a, a passionate feminist. I both am very inspired by her story and there are parts of the story that I don't agree with or parts of the things that she would she would say that I don't agree with or that I struggle with. Is she still alive? No, she she, died, um, she died just a few years ago. Uh, she lived to a, a very ripe, fabulous age. I think 2006 is when she died. So what actually we ended up doing, what we're starting to work on, is incorporating the story of Betty for Dan as well. You know, she's the founder of Second Wave Feminism. And what's fascinating to me, their lives were shockingly parallel in terms of born within a year of each other, had very similar relationships with their mothers. And then, of course, there are some great divergences. But one of the things that's really fascinating is that Betty Friedan really regularly called Helen Gurley Brown to the carpet for not being a feminist. And Helen Gurley Brown would respond, you're very confused. I am a feminist. And I'm, we're fascinated because that's sort of a fight we're still having, Second Wave versus Third Wave, and who gets to call you know, call themselves a feminist. What does the word mean? What can it include? And that's really fascinating. You've also composed music for plays, which is something else again. That's with Lauren Gunderson. How did that come about? We adore her. She's a friend and we became admirers of her work very early. I think we reached out to her and oh. she listened to some of our music and was that's like, right. oh, let's let's get Do coffee some... or something, or then and and suggested that we work together. That's and, exactly right. And she asked us to write yeah. a piece. Uh, and we love we love assignments. That's actually thrilling for us as songwriters to yeah. sit down with a playwright and say, okay, what what exactly do you want to happen in this moment? And let us see if we can imagine that. Now you've worked behind the scenes at Z Space. Eddie the Marvelous was Berkeley Rep Ground Floor, and now Theater Works. Is it pretty much the same process at each of those places? Well, I would say our experience with each has been very specific and limited. So sure. I don't think I could speak to the entirety of the process at any place. Ground Floor, as advertised, is this unbelievable sort of incredible maker's lab where you really get to, you get to ask all the hard questions about your piece. And you can have a performance at the end of your time or not. You can do a showing or not. And that, I think, is a hugely freeing thing for artists, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to really break the play and let it lie in shambles on the floor to see what you have, <laughs> knowing that you don't have to put it back together again in six days, right? Theater Works, I think, also does beautiful work of that very nature in their writer's retreat. The New Works Festival at Theater Works is 
designed to have a performance at the end, which is another thing that is essential in a process, right? Is that pressure that, yes, there will be an audience. And so you do have to put the playback together in six days because <laughs> they are showing up and they, you know, you want to give them your best work. Right. So in both cases, I think the process is designed to put just the right kind of pressure on a piece depending mm -hmm. on where it is, right? So when Eddie was at Berkeley Rep, we really needed to let it lie all over the floor for a while because it was brand new. It was the first draft. Two years later at TheaterWorks, it was wonderful to have the pressure of, a full audience and and some lighting and you're in a, you're in a theatrical space. I mean, people buy a ticket to that thing. You yeah. know what I mean? So there's and that was great for us two years yeah. later. You know, I'm hearing this and a part of me is thinking. So what does Berkeley Rep get out of this if they're just like letting you work and you're putting this thing together and then suddenly you're off at TheaterWorks or somewhere else? What do they get out of it? It's a great question. Well, I think one of the things that is absolutely true and fundamental, I think, in, in the DNA of the program is that everybody at Berkeley Rep, specifically Madeline Oldham, who's the director of Ground Floor and a dear friend, um, just believes in the process of new work and believes in the process of generation and the fact that for us to have theater that moves us and challenges us and changes our lives, we have to start somewhere. And they support that process in a, such a deep way. So in, in, in a sense, they get what they get out of it is being the soil and letting us plant the seeds. I want to be clear that most of the projects that we got to work with at Ground Floor did do a showing at the end, and they were all gorgeous and exciting, and you know it's, it's brilliant work that's happening. So it's not as if there isn't. There's lots right. of showcases at the end. They let you use that as a tool for yourself. And it's also right? they, they they accept projects from very different stages of development. Yes. Mm -hmm. Ours happen to be very nascent Correct. at that point, but many many of the projects are like you know further along and, and ready. I mean, we actually did give it a, give a performance at the end and it was enormously valuable, but yeah. it was just nice to have the option of, you know, breaking it and then being able to say at the last minute, you know what, we're not we're ready. Not ready. <laughs> but at, just as Dan says, another thing they do is, obviously, as they commission artists to make work, they use the ground floor as a tool for those artists. So several of the artists we were working with, like Julia Cho is a great example. She was commissioned by Berkeley Rep to write Aubergine. And so she was working, I think that was actually the year after ours, um, or maybe the week after yeah. ours. But so so they also use it as a laboratory for the projects that they are actively going to develop and put on their stage. Which they did with Aubergine. Absolutely. Were you heading down to West Berkeley a lot? I mean, when you when you have these things, are you on site in the offices over there? Or are you working at home? No, oh, we're, yes, on no site. we're on site. It's like summer camp and it's the best. It's so <laughs> awesome. You know, I mean, the idea really is that everybody's in the space together and you get your own rehearsal studio, obviously. Everybody needs, you know, that. But, you know, mealtimes, specifically dinner, is collective. Yeah, we get and to. they feed you. They feed you gorgeous, amazing food, actually, at Berkeley Rep. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. It's so and so you end up sitting with other artists and talking about your work and hearing about, you know, and, and saying, like, oh, I'm totally stuck on this and presenting it to a table and letting everybody weigh in on. So you've got. A series of projects in various stages of development, some of which you can talk about, which we have, and some of which you can't uh, because it's too soon and you don't know where they're going to go. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 We can we can talk about them as exciting little little germs of ideas. Yeah. Um, we were recently commissioned to write a piece for ACT's Youth Conservatory, so we're writing a musical for twenty five kids from sixteen to twenty years old, essentially, and that's that is a project that is. Brand new yeah. um, and sort of not not ready for for a public face yet, but it's a really exciting. <laughs> it be ready and uh, that's true. We're doing a chunk of it at the New Strands Festival at ACT in a few weeks, but but you know it's it's the next thing, the next big thing we're working on. With waitlist, do you have any plans past the Strand at this point? Dreams. We have dreams. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Has any of this been recorded? 
Yeah, oh, yeah, we made a record actually before we did the show at yeah, ZSpace. You can, uh, if you go to our website, you, you can stream, you can listen to the entire waitlist. So. Yep. Killbanes.com. You also have a kid. How old is your kid? Our daughter is three and a half years old. Is she coming with you to rehearsal? Yeah. She does some, Occasional. actually. She comes some, and, and then sometimes she gets to stay home with, with grandma and grandpa. But um, we were, I was driving her to rehearsal the other day, and I was explaining what was going to happen at the rehearsal and who was going to be there to take care of her and what she could do. And I said, do you have any questions? And she said, yes. Can I be in the play? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm so sorry. This play is for much, much older kids. They're 18. And she said, oh, I see. Can I be in the play, please? I think we're in trouble. The Kilbanes Rock Opera Waitlist plays at ACT Strand Theater April 30th to May 12th. For more information, you can go to act-sf.org. And to listen to Waitlist, you can go to kilbanes.com.